and a privilege for me to be sharing with you, for us to get to gather together and worship, to be able to gather around God's Word, to be able to get to go to the garden of God's Word and to pull forth a beautiful bouquet, an array of what God wants to teach us and to notice and to celebrate together in our moment in time. So we're so glad that you're with us. We're glad that you're with us in the sanctuary or whether you're joining us online. We hope that you get to experience the power and the presence of the risen Christ in this place. I want to begin by asking you to turn to somebody next to you. I want you to answer this question. When was a time that you felt isolated? When was a time where you felt like that you were kind of on the outside looking in? Turn to somebody next to you and answer that question. Ready, set, go. Well, I imagine there's a variety of different kinds of answers um, in the sanctuary today. There's, you know, probably the student that started at a new school and felt like that it was just hard for them to break in, that they felt isolated. I imagine there's people here who have gotten a promotion, and once they got a promotion and were put in a different leadership position, that all of a sudden the people who you were peers with before now all of a sudden treat you differently, that you're not treated the same way, and so you're kind of isolated, you're on the outside looking in. I imagine there's even people in this room that know what it feels like to be ostracized or to be discriminated against. There's all different kinds of isolation. But I want to introduce you this morning to a woman that I've known for 13 years. Her name is Melody Meyer. And for much of her life, she knows what it's like to kind of be isolated, to be on the fringe, kind of that outside looking in. You see, Melody studied mechanical engineering in the 1970s. And just in case you're not aware of it, there were not a lot of women studying mechanical engineering in the 1970s. And so she was in classes that were almost exclusively male. And then things got even more rare for her to be the only female around because she took her mechanical engineering degree and she decided to go into the oil and gas industry. And that's an industry that particularly at the time that was predominantly male-dominated. So she's on the outside kind of looking in a certain kind of professional isolation that's taking place there. But she really didn't know what isolation was until she started working for Chevron, and it's a company she worked for for over 30 years, and Chevron assigned her to go out into the field, and they sent her to this country, Kazakhstan. And that's where she experienced true isolation. There on kind of the northeast shores of the Caspian Sea, she was there to work on particular oil rigs, and she was thrust into this community where she was not just the only woman um, at that particular rig, but she was the only woman for miles and miles and miles around. She told me that when she was there that it was so isolating in part because of the weather, that in the winter it was 40 degrees below freezing, and in the summer it was 115 degrees in the shade that it was so hot and so cold that you basically just wanted to go and do your work and then people would come back and they would come back and they would just drink in their rooms alone, get drunk, fall asleep, and then wake up the next day and do their work the next day. She said it was so isolating and she said that it was awful and she 
wanted to try to think of something that she could do that would pull people together. Well, this was the late 1980s when she was assigned to this place, and uh, it's when aerobics were kind of a big deal. So donning some sweatbands and putting on some 80s music, she began to teach aerobics after work was over. And what made this absolutely hysterical is that the people that were in her oil and gas Kazakhstan aerobics class were Russians and Hungarians and Turks and her. I mean, it really was like the beginning of a joke. And uh, that she, said that they, she said that they would count in the different languages as they would do the different sets. And, and as she's sitting there telling me that story, I'm like, if sweatbands and 80s music and aerobics can pull people together from different cultures and different places and rescue us from lives of despair. Imagine what the gospel can do. Imagine when the joy of Jesus Christ is what pulls us together, what that could do. Imagine what the love of Jesus Christ could do when that animates us and pulls us together. Imagine what the hope of Jesus Christ can do when that is what moves us and causes us to sing. When these things pull together, it's what we refer to as unexpected togetherness. And this is what we've been looking at in our series. We've been talking about the different way that the gospel unites us and brings us in a world that in everything is coming apart. And so we've been looking at that beautiful portrait of the church in early Acts chapter 2 and how the early Christian community was experiencing the, the power of being together that they ate together, that they learned together, that they shared together, that they prayed together. And then we've been coming up with this invitation that we want everybody at Peachtree to not just to come to church, not to loosely affiliate with the congregation, but that we want everybody in Peachtree to be a part of a community, to help you to find your place to belong. In every community, we want to gather, learn, serve, and care, and to always fill the empty chair, that redemptive, outward-looking posture of our communities to welcome those who are strangers so that they might become family. And so as we've been walking through this, we've been rewinding to the Gospel of Luke, and as we've gone back, we've been discovering how the, the early church didn't spontaneously become a community, that, but that Jesus has been cultivating it with these different values along the way. We've been talking about overcoming rejection, overcoming wounds, overcoming distrust, overcoming… Today, we're going to look at this, overcoming isolation with proximity, the way that God brings us close. We know that in the incarnation that God drew near, that He doesn't keep us at a distance, but that He wants to be close to us. And in today's story, we're going to get to see how God brings that unexpected togetherness for a community that you wouldn't expect it. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and she wiped them with her hair, and she kissed them and poured perfume on them. 
When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came to your house and you do not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet and with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to this woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. May God bless not only the reading and the receiving, but also the putting into practice, the embodiment, the enacting, and the living out of his holy word. There's a catchphrase amongst leaders in higher education. If you talk to administrators at universities today, they talk about productive collisions. And this catchphrase is about recognizing that some of the greatest creative moments come not from like one department coming up, going deep with the discovery, but from two different departments or people coming together that don't normally belong together and discovering something because they have crashed into one another. So what happens when you get an art history professor and a biology professor and they start collaborating on something, something interesting usually comes out of that? Or what if a, a religion professor has, has lunch with a computer science student and they begin to talk about their research and what might be able to come out of that? Two things collide and something else comes out as a result. Well, this is something that Steve Jobs discovered in his life. He said one of the most important things of his life was actually taking a calligraphy class. And one of the things that he began to feel passionate about was not just having computers that had really great functions and features, but he believed in a day when computers themselves would be works of art, that they would be beautiful in their own right. A techie does calligraphy and comes out with something remarkable. Well, I believe that today's story can best be described as a productive collision. Two things come together, two different people come together, and something else emerges out of it. You have a woman who is a prostitute, and you have a religious leader, and their lives are about to crash into one another in the presence of Jesus. And in this collision, we're about to see what comes out the other side. One of God's great desires for us is to not live separate, isolated lives, but for us to learn what it means to be close. And one of the things that I think that this woman and this man are going to show us on this journey is we're going to learn how 
what prevents us from getting close to one another and how we might overcome it. So here's what prevents us from getting close to one another, that you can't see the debt, you can't see others, and you can't see Jesus. And we're going to start with not being able to see the debt. What happens here is that there's a story within a story, that Jesus tells a parable while he is at Simon's house, and that parable has to do with this currency. Uh, I don't know if you noticed the Roman denarii in the story, and basically Jesus is contrasting uh, a couple of months' worth of salary with a couple of years' worth of salary, that there are these two guys that owe that amount of money, and that in this parable they are forgiven. And I'll never forget the first time that I encountered the story when I was in college. I was seeing a mentor, a man who was much older than I was, and he specifically read me this story out loud, and he said, Rich, are you more like a $50 person or are you more like a $500 person? And I said, actually, I'm probably more like a $50 person. And he goes, I know, and that's what worries me about you. And he went on to be able to say this. He said, Rich, I'm afraid that you're using your relative goodness to keep your heavenly Father at a distance. It's like you're kind of thinking, well, if God's grading on a curve, I'm not so bad. And so as a result, you know, I'm kind of okay. The point of the parable is that both people can't pay what they owe. And yes, one owes more than the other, but the point is is that both of them are given grace. And so what Jesus is trying to tell in this parable is that whoever has been forgiven little usually loves little. But those who have been forgiven much typically love a lot. In other words, how you perceive your debt and whether or not you have it determines your willingness to be able to love and to forgive other people. We have a phrase in our family where we say that you got to own your stuff. Can you say that? Own your stuff. And what we mean by that is, is that it may not be mostly even my fault in a particular moment, but there's still, if it's a family problem, if it's family-related conflict, I still got to own my own stuff. So, you know, usually my wife is responsible for all the conflict and the problems in our relationship, and so it's mostly her fault. But even that, I have to own my stuff because I'm 100% responsible for my stuff, right? And if I'm trying to constantly compare my stuff to her stuff, and if I'm seeing that, hey, I've only got this amount of responsibility, but you got that amount of responsibility, that affects our ability to be close with one another. Are you following me in this? If you think that you've been forgiven only a little, you're probably only going to love a little. Do you see your debt? That's the first thing that prevents us from being close. The second thing that prevents us from being close, according to the story, is that we can't see others. Jesus turns to Simon and he says, point blank, do you see this woman? And there's a little bit of a play on words in this. The Greek has different, different words for what it means to see. There's a difference between looking, Jesus could have chosen one word for this, and perceiving. Simon 
sees her in one sense, but not in the other sense. Does this ever happen for you? I mean, when you look in the mirror, do you ever have a different perception (laughs) of how you see yourself compared to the way that you really are? Does this ever happen for you with other people that, I mean, you're the authority on being able to see someone exactly for who they are and size them up and you've got them pegged just, just right? There's a difference between looking and perceiving. I'll never forget when I was um, a pastor in the New York City area, we lived in a little town called Summit, and one of my practices on Wednesday mornings was to get up early before work and to go with a small community of people. We would meet in the basement of the Episcopalian Church, and we would serve the homeless of our community uh, a warm breakfast, and we would fix them a sack lunch. And as we did this, there was about half of the population that we would serve, that, that, they were, that they were kind of regulars and you kind of got to know them. And there was another kind of half of the population that rotated in and out and you didn't see very often. And then on this particular Wednesday morning, I was not, my heart was not in it. My mind was somewhere else because as soon as I was done volunteering, I was getting to go to this place. This is Baltusrol Golf Club, and it's one of the finest golf clubs in the world. They've played seven U.S. Opens here. They've played a PGA Championship here, and it's an absolutely remarkable place. I had never played golf there before, and I was literally apoplectic with enthusiasm of being able to play golf there. And I didn't even know some of the protocol at a nice country club at this point. So I didn't even check in. I just went straight to the range to kind of tune up and people were looking for me. So we all converged at the first tee when it was time. And, um, and, and so I got there and each one of us is gonna have a caddy and I get introduced to my caddy. And all of a sudden when I look in his face, all of a sudden it occurs to me, I just served this guy breakfast about an hour ago. And my heart sank because I knew that I had served him, but I didn't see him. There was something about seeing him outside the context of the soup kitchen that kind of woke me to the reality of him being a different kind of person. You can imagine that our conversation as we went through the day was really different as a result of that. I almost feel like it was God whispering into my soul, Rich, do you see this man? And the reality for Simon is that he didn't see this woman. Simon saw this woman as a problem. Simon saw this woman as a distraction. Simon saw this woman as a disgrace. Did you know that every single sin that we commit against one against another, every single one of them can be traced back to the very same thing, our failure, our ability or our unwillingness to see the other person as a child of God. 
For when you truly are able to see someone and the image of God of who they are, you will not sin against them. If you are able to keep that as a reality at the forefront of your mind, you will treat people differently. And yet we don't see others for the way that God created them. What prevents us from getting close? We can't see our own debt. We can't see others. And thirdly, we can't see Jesus. We can't see Jesus. Simon, did you notice in this story, he says, if this man were a prophet, he would know. He would know if this man were a prophet. Here is the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, the Messiah, the anointed one, the weighted one, and Simon can't see it. All he sees is skepticism and doubt. And you contrast this with the way that the woman treats Jesus. Simon didn't even give him, you know, like, Uh, water to wash his feet, oil for his head, wash his hands, a kiss of greeting. Simon did not even treat this person as a person, much less the Messiah. And you contrast that with the way that the prostitute sees Jesus. The tears of gratitude fall down her face. That she lets down her hair, which was a sign of incredible vulnerability and intimacy in that day and age. And as a prostitute, she had a little jar of alabaster that she would wear around her neck, one little drop at a time for every bed. And she takes that jar and she pours it out upon the feet of Jesus because she doesn't need it anymore. She's able to see Jesus for who he is, and even though everybody else in the room is murmuring and complaining and saying things about her, it's almost like it doesn't even stick to her or phase her because she's got her eyes fixed on Jesus. When the girls were younger, we used to read this book to them. Uh, We would pull it off on the shelf. The girls would almost regularly ask for this particular book. It's called You Are Special by Max Lucado, and it's the story of little wooden creatures who are called Wemmicks. And the Wemmicks live in a small village, and they carry around little wooden boxes, and they have two different kinds of stickers in the box. They have black dot stickers, and they have gold star stickers. And to the pretty Wemmicks, to the talented ones, they walk around, and they heap the stickers upon them, but to misshapen ones, they receive black dots. And all the Wemmicks bear the signs of either stars and dots all over their body. There's a young and small Wemmick by the name of Punchinello who receives mostly dots. His nose is too big, he falls down all the time, but one day he sees another Wemmick by the name of Lucia who doesn't have any dots or any stars on her at all. People try to stick the marks on her, but they just, they just fall off. Punchinello wants to know her secret. It's quite simple, really, she says. Every day she goes to visit Eli, the woodcutter, the one who made her. And so Punchinello goes to see Eli for himself. And this is what he discovers. Punchinello, the voice was deep and strong, 
And Punchinello stopped. Punchinello, how good to see you. Come, let me have a look at you. And Punchinello turned slowly and looked at the large bearded craftsman. You, you know my name, the little wimmick asked. Of course I do. I made you. Eli stooped down and picked him up and set him on the bench. Hmm, the maker spoke thoughtfully as he inspected the gray circles. Looks like you've been given some bad marks. I didn't mean to, Eli. I really tried hard. Oh, you don't have to defend yourself to me, child. I don't care what the other Wemmicks think. You don't? No, and you shouldn't either. Who are they to give you stars or dots? They're Wemmicks just like you. What they think doesn't matter, Punchinello. All that matters is what I think, and I think you're pretty special. And Punchinello laughed, me? Special? Why? I can't walk fast. I can't jump. My paint is peeling. Why do I matter to you? And Eli looked at Punchinello and put his hand on those small wooden shoulders and spoke very softly, because you're mine. That's why you matter to me. Punchinello had never had anyone look at him like this, much less his maker, and he didn't know what to say. Every day I've been hoping you would come, Eli explained. I came because I met someone who had no marks. I know. She told me about you. Can I ask you, why do the stickers not stay on her? Child, because she has decided that what I think is more important than what they think. The stickers only stick if you let them. What? The stickers only stick if they matter to you. The more you trust my love, the less you care about the stickers. I'm not sure I understand. You will, but it will take some time. You've got a lot of marks, and for now, just come to see me every day and let me remind you how much I care. And Eli lifted Punchinello off the bench and set him on the ground. Remember, Eli said, as the Wemmick walked out the door, you are special because I made you, and I don't make mistakes. Punchinello didn't stop, but in his heart he thought, I think he really means it. And when he did, a dot fell to the ground. I want you to consider for a moment the dots that you have in your life. You don't belong here. You'll never make it. You don't have what it takes. What's wrong with you? I have no idea what kind of dots people have put on your life. Here's what I do know. When you trust your maker, when you go to see him, the dots don't stick to you anymore. I wonder as you came to the sanctuary this morning, you were thinking, I'm just going to church. But I wonder if you now realize that you're here to meet your maker. The one who constructed you and the one who loves you the one who knows you, and the one 
who cherishes you? Do you see him for the way that he sees you? Here's the deal. If you can't see the debt, you will always try to justify yourself. If you can't see others, you will end up trying to use other people. And if you can't see Jesus, you will seek approval and accolades from all the wrong places with all the wrong motives. I wonder if like little Punchinello, you need to come and to see your maker today. A little productive collision where two things come into contact with one another and something remarkable comes out the other side. Let's pray together. Lord, you never, ever want us to live in isolation, not from you, not with others. And I am sure that we come with little marks of exclusion and isolation that we've experienced in our life. Thank you for the invitation of drawing close with you, of even using creative crashing into our lives in ways that we don't expect. And so, Father, help us to have an honest estimation of who we are and to see the debt that we have that needs to be forgiven. Help us to own our stuff. Help us to be able to see others as your beloved children, as people created in your own image. And God, help us to see you. Help us to come to you in this moment. Set aside our cynicism and our sarcasm like Simon and help us to be like this woman who falls down on her knees and kisses your feet and lets the tears of gratitude flow from our eyes. Take away our marks, God. And allow us to be close to you.